This is another iRaw podcast. We podcast to make the world a better place for animals. In the Canadian justice system, animals' interests are rarely represented. But the lawyers at Animal Justice fight to give them a voice in court and the political system. This is the Pawn Order Podcast, and these are their stories. everybody and welcome to episode 43 of Pawn Order. Peter Sankoff here today with my co-host Camille Lapchuk. Hey Peter, good to be back together again recording separately. We are separate after being together in person Camille. We are separated again but together for the magic that is Pawn Order. Good to hear from you Camille. How's everything going with you? Uh, everything's going well. Yeah, Toronto, uh, everything is just really busy. We're kind of working a lot on end of year holiday parties that are coming up. I think that I spoke a little about this last episode, but we've got a party December 6th in Toronto. There's one November 29th in Vancouver and Ottawa probably December 13th. So we're just waiting on a couple things to confirm that. So anyone who's listening who wants to join, I'd love to see you. And, uh, yeah, well, I'm just, joining, Camille, as you I know. I know, I know. And you, so you would also love to see anyone who comes to the Toronto party, which is where you'll be. Yes, the December 6th Toronto party. I will be coming with my, my lovely vegan activist daughter, Penny. And I'm going to announce something special for that one. I haven't decided, but everybody who's Pawn Order listeners who come and say hello to my daughter, especially, I'll, I'm going to do something special. But we'll leave that. We still have a couple episodes before the holiday party. Yeah, yeah, definitely a few. So, yeah, if you're Very on our mailing list, you'll get emails about this. So sign up and, uh, you know, we'd love to see you. Peter, I'm also speaking at a food law conference in Toronto in the next couple of days this week. Uh, we're going to be wow. talking on a panel about transparency in uh, food issues, and I'm going to be speaking particularly about the fact that our ag- agriculture system, when it comes to animals, is the least transparent system that you could possibly imagine, uh, because there's no regulations or inspections of conditions of animals on farms. Now, one day it would be cool if, like, we had those, like, cigarettes, photos, warning labels, like, on, on you know, beef and milk products. Wouldn't that be mm. awesome if we had, like, a picture of what happened to the animal? Slap, like, that a Mercy for great, Animals Camille. investigation photo of pigs being kicked or cows being beaten or chickens yeah. confined. Yeah, that would be Pro- at least accurate information for consumers, huh? Probably never going to happen, but boy, wouldn't it be awesome. Yeah. Well, Peter, I have to say, so all our listeners, you probably know if you listened to our last episode that I was going to Peter's birthday the other weekend in Edmonton. And I just got to tell you guys, Peter puts on one hell of a party. His entire yard was just decked out in the, you know, the most Halloween decorations I've ever seen. There was like zombies, there's these like stuffed clothing dudes sitting in chairs with like crazy heads on them. There was a big spider. There was like all these automatic things. And that was just the outside. There was a dance floor inside and more scary stuff. So how, how did you find it? Did you, did you have a good time? I had a good time. It was a wonderful party. It was especially uh, special 
to have uh, my co-host come in for the party. That was awesome, and uh, yeah, we had a great time. We had a lot of a lot of a lot of friends come, and um, yeah, it was it was uh, it was really something. The house was very well decorated, and we had some lots of lovely uh, vegan delicacies and plenty. We even had vegan Jello shots, Camille. When was your last Jello shot? Uh, definitely the early two thousand. <laughs> So that was a highlight. And I also loved your cupcakes. The cupcakes were vegan, obviously, but the the icing on them, uh, all the words were defenses to murder charges. So like, no ID, uh, intoxicated. (laughs) I forget what else there was, but they were funny. There were a lot. I had like 15 of them. So there were, and I had other cupcakes as well, but we had 15. Those are a specialty of mine. I've been doing murder cupcakes for the last five or six years. And I always (laughs) have to come up with more and more defenses to murder charges. Oh, I thought they were fun. Well, I'm glad yeah, you had was, a good birthday. Uh, it, it was great, and we had a, a lovely, uh, a lovely uh, brunch for out of towners on that day. So, Camille, we got to go to our favorite restaurant, Padmanati, where I'm sure. What did you have this time, Camille? Did you have the tofu Benedict again? I did, but it was like tofu Benedict, but with like a Thai twist on it. So, oh yeah, the Thai different. tofu Benedict. Yeah, it's yeah, excellent. It was really good. And, and and it was nice that uh, our friend Kasim from Padmanati even came out to the party. Yeah, yeah, like it seems like all your loved ones were there. So and brought and brought spring rolls that were scoffed down. Oh, they were. Oh, they were. Now there were many amazing things about the party, but uh, particularly special for listeners is that uh, oh, I forgot there were two things I wanted to say about the party. The first is Camille, did you notice the scariest uh, uh, costume at the party? Who had it? <laughs> I think you're probably going to say that Zach Wilson, who's a student <laughs> of yours at the University of Alberta, he said he was trying to think of the scariest possible costume for a vegan, so he was a piece of bacon. <laughs> He came as bacon. I thought that was great. I thought that was terrifying. It was really good. <laughs> what was the What was the other yeah. thing? Um, I was going to say the other thing that was particularly special is that Camille brought me a birthday present. It was my very own Paw and Order T-shirt. It I, was. I now own. I now own the only Paw and Order T-shirt in Canada. In the world, the only Paw and Order the T-shirt world. in the world. In the world. But Camille, I am determined for that to change. In fact, I'm calling out to all our listeners. I've been harassing Camille that we need Paw and Order t-shirts. And she keeps telling me there's not enough of a market for them. And she's probably right. (laughs) But in case she's wrong, listeners, I want you to let us know. I want you to let us know if you would support a Paw and Order t-shirt. And I think, hey, if we can get 10 to 20 listeners to write in, we might start manufacturing Paw and Order t-shirts. If you see how beautiful mine is, you'll understand why you need a Paw and Order t-shirt in your life. I mean, I will certainly consider it if we have enough people asking for them, but I'm skeptical. Let's just leave it at that. We need... We need clamoring. We need clamoring for this. Yeah. Now, yeah. that was re- really exciting. But what has, let me just say, this has been um, a very odd couple of months because um, Camille and I usually go months without seeing each other. And, of course, we saw each other at the Halifax um, the Halifax conference in early October. And then we saw each other again at my birthday uh, last week. And I'm coming to Toronto next week out of the blue. So, as it turns out, I'm seeing Camille again. 
And then I'm coming back two weeks later for the holiday party or three weeks later. So I'm seeing you like every three weeks, Camille. It's going to be boring by the end of it. I know. I'm already kind of tired of seeing you, to be honest. Not really. Not really. Just, just I don't blame you. I don't blame, I don't blame you with the many <laughs> with the many times I poke fun at you. Uh, yes. And uh, but yes, I'm seeing Camille next week. And uh, yeah, that'll be fantastic. We'll be talking some pawn order and other stuff and uh, eat some Toronto food. And Camille, there's one more note that we forgot um, that's very important. We should point out there has been a move to draft you, Camille, for a new job on Twitter. I've noticed that some people are with your good friend Elizabeth May retiring from the Green Party. It's like we should draft Camille for the the head of the leadership of the Green Party. Oh, my God. It's oh, a, my God. It's a... It's a fantastic idea, except then you'd have to leave Paw and Order, which just cannot happen, Camille. No, like, I, I know. I feel happen. like I feel like you would just never allow me to do that. It would just be no. You know, and and in some after way. last week, yeah, after last week, we had to raise your salary after Global came at you with an offer, and now the Green Party is clamoring for Camille. Camille, I've been authorized to raise your salary for Paw and Order by a cool thirty percent, Camille. Oh, that's thirty percent raise. Thirty percent raise and no zero. To that. <laughs> you well, can't say no, Camille. No, but I will. I will throw in a pawn order T-shirt. Well, that look, that that's a clincher. Then Let, let's just say I have a feeling <laughs> I'll be sticking around. Oh <laughs> uh, well, I'm delighted. What's the the Green Party's loss is pawn orders gain, Camille. <laughs> that's what's important to us. We are keeping you around to continue uh, doing pawn order. We've got a great show in store for you today. We've got, uh, aside from our usual news, Camille, we're going to be focusing on our main topic today on the very exciting news out of Ontario. We're just going to call it Bill 136, which is an act to uh, really start over with animal protection law in Ontario. It's a whole new system, and we're going to go over what the government's proposing and why we think it's actually pretty good and get down to some of those details. And uh, but yep, before very, we get very into that, stuff. a few things to tell you guys about. So first of all, uh, this weekend, so probably it'll be over by the time some of you listen to it, but you can still donate. I am going silent for 24 hours for Animal Justice's Voiceless for Animal Justice fundraiser. So people from across the country are joining up and uh, we're all going to go silent on November 9th or another day of their choosing to support the animals whose voices are silenced by industries. So you can support my page or anyone else's page who's participating and we'll post a link in the show notes. Absolutely. Fantastic. Uh, good luck, Camille. I'm not going silent, as you know. It would be impossible for me. Yeah, no, you so, just, but you just am, talk nonstop, so I, I don't blame you. I just couldn't see that happening. I, I do talk nonstop. There's just no way. Uh, an extra day of silence just isn't going to work out for me. Yeah, but I, I mean, will support in spirit, of course. Now, um, I, I should say, Camille, um, I think I was moaning a little bit. Is it fair to say? Um, I have moaned occasionally about our listeners, you know, failing to do things for us on a regular basis, including reviews. But let me just say that I am not moaning today, Camille. I am full. My heart is full with an embarrassment of riches because since we moaned a little about no reviews like for months, we got like a slew of new reviews on iTunes, which was very exciting to us. Yeah, all your complaining... uh paid off it was it was great to see all those and the reason this is so Apparently. important is that it helps other people find the podcast if you guys leave reviews 
So uh, I don't think we want to read all four of those reviews out, but I no, did. No, let's just read one. Camille. Yeah, I did copy down one from Alice that I particularly liked. Alice says, I've only been listening to Paw and Order for a few months, but it has quickly become an indispensable resource for keeping tabs on animal issues in Canada. I'm not a lawyer and never will be, but this podcast offers tremendous value for anyone interested in understanding of how uh, progress is made in animal rights in this country. And of course, it doesn't hurt that Camille and Peter are such entertaining hosts. Aww. Just start listening. Aww. You won't regret it. Oh, actually, that's well, not from Alice. You, Alice. That's from somebody named Jordan J.M. Jordan. Got that Yes, wrong. that's what yeah. I thought. Jordan, thank you very much. We really appreciate the review. Yeah, it's awesome. So, and on top of that, Camille, there's more because uh, it's we have a new Patreon subscriber. And, you know, I do also challenge our listeners that we're getting so close to our $200 goal um, that we set. We haven't set a time limit, but I think we're aiming for the end of the year by $200 a month. We're very close, but we now have a new Patreon subscriber uh, this week, uh, Danielle Senek, which brings us to $177 per month. That is absolutely vital to us because we just talked about our salaries. We need to retain Camille. Uh, no, just kidding. We, we don't take any salaries. Camille and I have never taken a dollar from this podcast, but we do need the money to um, continue to have the podcast edited and to pay for hosting fees and some other things like that. So we do need to do it. And of course, any extra money that there is when there's extra money goes to support animal justice in its many endeavors. So please help us at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash paw and order. And another way you can support the podcast is by shopping at The Grinning Goat, our official podcast sponsor. The Grinning Goat is Canada's vegan boutique, and you can find them in Calgary on 17th Avenue Southwest or also online at grinninggoat.ca. And uh, as a Paw and, listener, uh, Paw and Order listener, you're entitled to a special 15% discount at checkout. All you have to do is enter the code PAW15. They have uh, fantastic boots, fantastic winter clothing. I know they're having a coat sale on right now. And uh, it's definitely worth checking them out if you want to get ready for the winter. Fantastic. Always love the Grinning Goat. Great stuff, Camille. Let's get into the news because uh, the leadoff story today is there is yet another not in Canada, unfortunately, but another big foie gras ban that has been uh, um, enacted, this time in New York City. And this is definitely a big one because there are reports that uh, New York City is about a third of the demand for foie gras across the country in the U U.S. Uh, there's actually only a handful of foie gras farms left. Uh, the state of California has already banned both the production and sale of foie gras. That was fought viciously in court by the foie gras industry, and they kept losing, and I think that fight is finally over, or close to over. But with New York imposing a very similar ban, this takes another huge chunk out of that industry, so it's really good news. I gotta say, Peter, we're a little behind the times. We still produce foie gras here in Quebec, in Canada, and as we talked about a few episodes ago, our government's actually funding the foie gras industry so it can improve public trust in its product, i.e. try to counter some of the accurate information about animal cruelty that's been elicited. So Canada yeah, still a long sad. way to go, but way to go New York, you're an inspiration to all of us. And I should note the ban passed like it wasn't even close. It was like 42 to 6 or something like that. And that was a municipal ban, correct, Camille? That's right. It was New York City Council that enacted it. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of always wondering if uh, we could get municipal bans um, in Canada because we, we don't have any municipal bans yet, correct? It's it's tough. Like municipalities, and mm. it varies from province to province and even city to city. But 
Um, a lot of them don't seem to have the ability to ban products. They could ban practices that involve live animals, but products seem to be a different story. So, you know, I know there are some activists thinking about these types of bans here, and I'm sure mm. that there'll be more discussions about where, if anywhere, this is actually possible. You know, I'm not, we should schedule um, in future a show on that. I am, I am, to put it mildly, Camille. I am not an expert on municipal law. That about, I mean, there are things that are outside of my natural skill set, and that is that one is about as far as it goes. I really am not an expert. I've looked at the issue from time to time, and as you recall, um, we have an expert in municipal law here at my university. In fact, he co-wrote uh, the chapter in the book on perspectives on animal law in Canada. Maybe we should have him on as a guest uh, to talk about municipalities and the ability to extend animal welfare bans. Yeah, Cameron Jeffries. He's been on a few times. And to be great, actually, actually, oh, you're talking about someone actually, else. That's yeah, I am talking about someone else because Cameron wrote the, that part of the chapter. He co-wrote it, if you remember, with my my colleague who was at the party. Actually, Iran Kaplinsky, and Iran is not particularly an animal advocate, but he co-wrote the chapter because he filled in all the municipal law stuff that was so essential. So he's really the municipal law expert. Oh, great! Let's conscript him. <laughs> yeah, I think we should. I think that's a great idea. <laughs> Well, our next story is one that's a little bit more um, upbeat when it comes to Canada. There's been a huge hit to the fur industry here. North American Fur Auctions, which is the world's oldest fur auction house, has lost one of its banks, uh, banks, uh, lenders that, that finances it and makes sure it can keep its doors open. And it's not sure that it's going to sell any wild fur whatsoever this season because it just can't find the financing. And the CBC story is really interesting. They say that we've faced almost insurmountable challenges as our banking partners of many years appear to have decided to get out of the fur business. That's what the NAFA president and CEO said in a letter to trappers and fur shippers. And, uh, you know, it just seems like banks are saying, no, we're not really interested in this market. We don't think it's a good area to be working in, whether they're taking that position for an ethical reason or just a financial one. Uh, in the end, I don't really care if it gets this fur auction not operating. I think that's fantastic. Hmm. Yeah, that is really good stuff. Obviously, changes of this sort are positive. They are incremental, and uh, I like to see this sort of stuff uh, move on and uh, sort of uh, expire of natural causes, as it were. In this case, financial causes, sort of recognizing, hopefully, that the market is uh, so problematic. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, cheers to that. And we've got an like update it. on some uh, some stuff in your home province, Peter. Four Albertans mm. who are now facing charges after they did a sit-in protest at an Alberta turkey farm last month. Uh, this is actually September now, I suppose. It's the article's from October. But we talked about this on the podcast before, but uh, four people now are facing charges, if I believe. Uh, I'm not sure if they're all facing the same charges. Oh, yes, they are. They're each facing... It's break and enter. Break and enter and mischief. Or break and enter. It looks like there are charges with break and enter with the the, the uh, intention to commit mischief. Well, I actually saw one of the informations in the case, so I think it's two separate charges. But I'm, I'm not, is it okay? Yeah, I'm not totally sure. Uh, notably, well, the break and enter, the break and enter has to be with intent to commit mischief. Yeah, exactly. With an intent to commit some offense. And mm -hmm. notably, one of the people who's been charged is a 16-year-old girl. So, you know, I'm saying this with as much sarcasm as I can muster. Really great that the state of, uh, or the, the, the province of Alberta sees fit to use its resources to prosecute children. It, uh, it wouldn't surprise me if she is ultimately um, resolved in some other way. 
Like that wouldn't surprise me at all. No, so, that... because she's 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 going to be her court case is going to go separate. The three of them will go together, and she'll be she'll be separately proceeded with under the Youth Criminal Justice Act. And I would be very surprised if her charges weren't resolved in some way. Well, it's it's definitely true that most charges never make it to trial, and when youth are involved, that's uh, even more the case. But I got to say, this is just the latest thing to come out after that sit-in protest at the turkey farm. The other thing that we've discussed mm. on the podcast before, of course, is that the uh, Jason Kenney uh, United Conservative Party government in Alberta is now planning to crack down on these forms of activism by introducing egg gag style laws in Alberta that increase fines for trespass and potentially prohibit people from doing a whole bunch of problematic things. So we'll be following all of this very closely. Yeah, let's just talk quickly. I mean, I, I think when act, advocate activists um, um, decide to take action like this, there's always the possibility of facing criminal charges. I think that's a reality. And I think there are going to be times where they cross over the side of the law and may well end up, you know, facing conviction. This is hardly the first time uh, that's happened, and it certainly will not be the last. And I'm not saying they're going to be convicted. I'm just saying that um, when we, you know, we've talked to activists before and tried to explain to them what the law allows and doesn't allow them to do. And uh, there are always risks involved when you decide to, you know, you you want to make a point. You wish to get media coverage and show how problematic these turkey farms or whatever are. And uh, if you decide to do that and take the law in a sense into your own hands, then there is the possibility that charges will be faced. And when we're talking here, um, I think you and I, Camille, have talked before about the challenges of proving uh, mischief, right, which is the most commonly laid charge. Um, in fact, I remember we had a discussion about the um, the um, the mink farm, if you recall, way back. Do you remember we had a discussion like that about whether or not he could be faced mischief charges? Yeah, you're, you're talking about the, uh, the guy, Malcolm, who went to mink farms and filmed what he saw. Right, right. And I, I think one of the things we discussed was that because he essentially entered and left surreptitiously, I always thought it was going to be incredibly hard to prove mischief because it, 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 it's, it's breaking and entering on its own is not a crime, right? It's a trespass it's a civil, until Alberta gets through with their new law. But at the time, it's a civil trespass. So essentially breaking and entering without the um, attempt to interrupt the the normal operation of the farm is, is really not a crime. And that's where I think they were going to have trouble. And I think we discussed that, Camille, with the idea of the activists here um, coming in during the daytime um, is 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 going to be more of a challenge to suggest that they were not interrupting the normal operation of the farm. Not impossible, but certainly challenging. Right, right. Yeah, that's right. Well, I mean, these types of actions are becoming increasingly common across the country. We've seen now multiple ones in multiple jurisdictions, Ontario, Alberta, British Columbia. Uh, I always kind of thought when these started popping up that we would see the state respond in some way, and that is happening now. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see how this all unfolds. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's uh, going to be interesting to follow. Yeah. Okay, and we have another story out of, uh, well, Vancouver, I guess, but some organizations mm. have taken the CFIA, the Canadian Food Inspection Agency, to court. We've talked about this before, but the Canadian Horse Defense Coalition has filed the uh, case. And what they're concerned about is that the CFIA is not following the law when it allows shipments of horses to be flown by air to uh, Japan to become 
horse meat. And they're concerned that the containers that the horses are kept in, the crates, are not sufficiently large to comply with the statute. So the statute says they have to be um, certain a number of uh, a certain number of inches high. And the concern is that they're definitely not as high as they're supposed to be. And the, the, the horses are being kind of crammed in there. They're suffering as a result. There's all kinds of problems that are resulting from this. And the CFIA is just basically taking the position that it's not going to apply that law. So that's a huge problem. So our friend Rebecca Bretter is uh, representing the Canadian Horse Defense Coalition. And the case was heard a few days ago in Vancouver. Yeah, it seems very interesting. Um, I think it's interesting how they're challenging the law. They're doing this through a judicial review, which is essentially an administrative process in which you attempt to challenge um, the government's particular action, or in this case, inaction, in particularly applying a law and essentially saying that the government agency's actions did not comply with the governing law. And uh, I mean, I'm reviewing my, uh, I, I didn't attend the hearing, obviously, but I'm looking at some of the decisions. Uh, discussion of what took place in the hearing. And it's interesting that one of the CFIA's claims is that, well, there's new rules coming in next year. So this doesn't really matter. This case is moot. And there's nothing that drives me crazier than that. Um, I am really, I get very annoyed when the government attempts to use procedural arguments to dismiss the work of animal advocates. And I say that because I'm aware of the challenges that animal advocates have in navigating a shifting landscape and attempting to get standing in the first place to advocate on behalf of animals. And the truth of the matter is, if CFIA has not been applying its own rules, and that's that's the claim at the core of the case, what difference does it make that new rules are coming in next year? It's pretty egregious that the agency just seems to think that the law doesn't apply to it. It can do what it wants. It's the government. Uh, but, you know, kudos to these folks. I think this is exactly the types of cases that animal advocates should be bringing and holding the government to account for these types of failures. Absolutely. And, you know, the government says there's no requirement on the CFIA to obtain particular enforcement results. Well, I, I sort of agree with that. I mean, I do agree with that because I know that as a criminal lawyer, I know that it's absolutely impossible to say that every crime must be investigated and enforced. But I don't think that's what the claim is making. I think it's one thing to say, well, we can't enforce every every particular violation of every particular law, especially in an area um, as, 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 as significant as with animals. But I think it's something else to say we're not enforcing these standards at all. We're just, we have them, we're not going to use them. And I think, uh, I think that's incredibly troubling. And I think that the, course, the, the, the court case or the Canadian Horse Defense Coalition is on good grounds when they suggest that, look, if you're going to ignore your laws, um, that, that, that is problematic. And the Canadian public deserves to hear about that, that says you're just going to continue to ship these animals out and the CFIA will do nothing. Very problematic. And, you know, obviously discretionary enforcement exists for a reason. All, all the laws on the books in Canada at the three levels of government can't possibly be enforced in every single case, every single time. But, you know, I think, Peter, and I'm not that familiar with the details of this case, I think one of the issues is that the CFIA has to issue some sort of certificate uh, certifying that the shipments have been approved and comply with the law. And so they're doing that in a situation where obviously the shipments don't comply and the CFIA is just deciding that that's fine. So interesting. That's right. And what I, 
What I find particularly annoying in these cases is that when you question the CFIA about these types of things or you try to seek information or you try to hold the government to account, they'll say, well, we have standards and we have laws and these need to be adhered to. But but when you get down to the ground, you realize that the interpretation of the law by the particular agency and the way in which it decides to imply it is very different than what the government would say to the public. Like I would imagine if the if the government I I'm the responsible minister. Well, obviously we don't have a new cabinet yet, so I can't ask who the responsible minister, but I'm assuming it would be the Minister of Agriculture, correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so if someone posed a question to the Minister of Agriculture about the, this particular story and asked about it, they'd say, well, we have processes and we have laws and we're enforcing these things. And I'm like, it bothers me when you have these dressed up standards and put them in place and then, of course, refuse en masse to actually enforce them. And I think we've seen that time and time again in the animal area. The problem I, I believe that the standards are often a problem, Camille, as well. But the problem is more often than not a failure or a refusal to actually enforce the standards. Well, it's a huge part of it. And the other funny thing is that if you ask the minister, they would usually say some version of, oh, Canada has strict regulations for the care of animals or for animals in human care or animals in the farming system. And, you know, they're they're deceiving the public on two fronts. They're first saying that the regulations are somehow strict, which they're not. They're an absolute joke. And they're second, like implying that they're actually doing something about the fact that regulations exist, i.e. enforcing them, which is uh, more often than not, not the case. Absolutely, Camille. Well, good luck to uh, Rebecca and the Canadian uh, uh, Horse Defense Coalition in this particular review. We look forward to monitoring the case with interest. Yeah. And now, Peter, I guess we're on to our exciting main topic, the fact that Ontario has introduced new animal welfare legislation, the PAWS Act. Is that what it is? It is the PAWS Act. I didn't even notice that acronym, Camille. Good I for know, you. I know. Isn't that clever? I mean, it's, it's just such an obviously an obvious one. The Provincial Animal Welfare Services Act, Bill 136. Uh, anytime you've got the words animal welfare in there, you've got like part of the word PAW already. So why not just make it the whole, mm. the whole thing? Anyway, kind of a clever I, name. I think that's uh, fantastic. Yes, absolutely. It's like we can say it's part of the legislative intention, Camille, you see, to make it more animal friendly. <laughs> and let's give our <laughs> listeners a little bit of background. If you're a consistent listener of the podcast, then you probably already have a pretty decent idea what's going on here. But for those of you who may be tuning in or just sort of picking up on this story now, changes to Ontario's animal welfare laws and the way they're enforced have been a very long time coming. There's been a lot of discussion and criticism of the system over the years. Uh, like all of the other provinces virtually, Ontario enforces at the moment, or I guess not really at the moment, but the system allowed for enforcement of laws by the Ontario SPCA, which is a private charity. And a lot of people from a lot of different sectors were having problems with this and sort of coming to the conclusion that it wasn't appropriate for a private charity to enforce public laws. Animal Justice was one of those organizations that spoke up in this way. And we actually intervened in a court case called uh, Bogarts and the Ontario Attorney General. Uh, which challenged this whole idea that it was appropriate to do that in the first place. And the court adopted our arguments and our position and said that it was uh, contrary to the Constitution for private charities to enforce public laws without any transparency and accountability, which is really the crux of this issue. 
So the OSPCA wasn't subject to freedom of information legislation, and they weren't subject to police accountability legislation. And always sort of the biggest one that didn't really play into the court decision so much, but a huge concern for us is that they uh, were fundraising from the same individuals potentially that they would be enforcing the law against. Yeah, that's uh, that's a big part of it. And of course, the OSPCA made a decision afterwards, Camille, it sort of shook everybody up. The OSPCA said it agreed with the decision and it had the same concerns and it decided that it would get out of the animal welfare law enforcement game. And they decided this in March of this year. And it really did shake things up even more. The The court decision came out in January. By March, you've got the OSPCA saying, yeah, we're, we're just out of this. We don't want to do this work anymore. There should be a new system. And since that time, there's just been a lot of discussion about what is to come next. And, uh, you know, tons of people from different areas releasing their proposals. Uh, but one thing that's become really clear, I think, and dominated the conversation is that most people from most sectors were saying this needs to be a public function. We can't keep giving this to a private charity and forcing them to largely pick up the tab for this work. Yeah. And Camille, I want to just say this. I, I, I don't do this very often, but um, I kind of want to like, like, well, let me say two things. First of all, um, we don't know what the details, the precise details of these laws are going to be. We'll talk about that in due course. So let's just say that the writing on this bill and what's going to happen in Ontario for animals is not quite finished yet. I think that's fair to say. But I do want to say, like, I, I kind of want to give us both a pat on the back, because I think when this came down, there was quite a bit of controversy from people um, across Canada and there was a real uh, fear I think, about what might come next. And I think what you and I both said, and this is also true when the same situation unfolded in Edmonton, when the Humane Society decided it was no longer going to do this, you and I have pretty much taken the standard line that um, for better or worse, I believe that animal protection laws in this country will not move forward as long as the SPCAs continue to dominate the framework and continue to be willing to prop up governments by doing this sort of charitable work for free. And I think that what has happened in these other jurisdictions where this has started to happen is what we're seeing is there was a real fear that if the SPCA pulled out, well, no one would do this or no one would take this seriously. And I think what, what's been very What's been very heartening to me, Camille, to see is that in both jurisdictions, both in Edmonton and in Ontario, we've seen that the, the, the SPCA pulling out has provided a real opportunity not only to refinance how these investigations take place, but to look at the overall governing legislation and really come at it with a fresh approach. Yeah, Ontario and Edmonton have both done something pretty important here. They're both moving investigations and enforcement into the public sphere. This is like, honestly, it's totally groundbreaking. Now, you know, obviously, Peter, you and I have talked about this a lot, including on this podcast, but something really needed to change, something needed to give. The factors kind of all aligned. And to its credit, the government really rose to the occasion in Ontario. And of course, in, in Edmonton as well, the city council, uh, city council in Edmonton, yeah quadrupled the enforcement budget for animal welfare in the city compared to what the SPCA was able to spend on it and or the, the Humane Society was able to spend on it. And, uh, you know, that's tremendous. So, you know, there's the funding aspect, but then there's also the uh, more sort of structural, sort of less um, exciting to the public aspect. But what, as lawyers, I think we identify is really important, which is just getting those fundamental structures right. And what we're starting to see from Ontario is something that looks pretty close to right. 
Yeah, and and I'll just I want to follow up on that point because like I remember having this debate literally like almost 20 years ago in New Zealand when I had discussions with the SPCAs who were moaning and groaning literally about the way they were being treated by the government. And I kept saying that the landscape on the ground had changed. And I think what was constantly being promoted was this fear that if the SPCAs resisted or pulled back from what they were doing, no one would take care of animals. The government would just shrug its shoulders and say, you know, we're not going to deal with this if the SPCAs don't want to do it, too bad. And I just don't think that's a realistic possibility anymore. I think the landscape in the world has changed enough that I think that, you know, I think consumers and and the public will hold governments to account and say something needs to be done. And I say that in particular, Camille, I mean, we're going to come to this in a bit later in more detail, but like, you know, I I, I, I think it, it's, it's hard to be said that the Ontario government that is currently in place would strike me, you know, as being the most animal-friendly government in Canada. Yet the bill they've put forward really makes one able to potentially make that claim. Absolutely, absolutely. One of the things that we kept hearing when the court case came down and when the OSPCA withdrew from enforcement was like, oh, the Ford government, their PCs, it's going to be way worse. It's going to be awful. And I never bought that. I think all along we thought this isn't a partisan issue. Uh, this is an enforcement issue. That's actually something that more conservative governments tend to take quite seriously. And so I was always optimistic that we'd get something good. And, and you know, speaking with the bureaucrats who are working on this, the civil service consulted with animal groups, including animal justice. It was heartening to me the extent to which they really took our comments to heart, uh, both about the structure, but also about the substance of of what new laws that uh, they were potentially looking at. So they viewed this not as an opportunity only to change the enforcement structure, but also as a chance to get some more substantive new laws in place. And I think that's what we're moving toward. So just really have to give them props for this. It was unexpected by many, but really a delight to see. Absolutely. I would would certainly, uh, it gives me... It gives me hope when you see the biggest province in Canada making these kinds of moves, really on the on the, you know, following up on moves in Quebec and other jurisdictions. I mean, again, um, we had this conversation at the conference, but I, I, I cannot believe that we're not going to see more action at the federal level eventually. It's just it's 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 kind of hard to believe that we're not going to move forward when we're seeing things like this. No, I think the tides are really turning on animal rights and protection in this country, and we're bound to see more changes. And I was also glad to see Ontario billing this and this the Solicitor General, Sylvia Jones, billing this as uh, something that other provinces should look at. So they're re- really viewing their work as a model for what other provinces should consider. And I do hope that there's going to be more uptake. All right, so let's take a look at the bill, Camille, and there is a lot to go through. So we'll try and highlight a couple of the the the, uh, the main sections. Um, but um, right off, I want to I want to uh, go after what I think is one of the most important, both in terms of what I think it's going to do, and also in terms of the symbolism, Camille, of what it means. And that is that the entirety of the bill obviously takes away the power of the OSPCA, which was the primary investigative body in the province in terms of the OSPCA also had the ability to appoint investigators. Now, that that entire task has been given to a public agent who is the chief animal welfare inspector, Camille. 
Yeah, that's right. So there's a head of this whole organization, and then the legislation empowers that person to start appointing inspectors uh, at a lower level who are going to carry out the work of actually investigating animal offenses. And uh, we should note this isn't in the bill, but the government has publicly said that there will be 100 investigators at this point. Uh, That's more than the 65 or so OSPCA inspectors who were appointed. So that's positive. But but Camille, I also like obviously the the people on the ground are important, but I just want to deal with the symbolism for just a moment, because in my opinion, the chief animal welfare inspector in Ontario, when that person is, you know, finally important, I believe there is an interim person in charge right now. But when that person takes over the job permanently, they will instantly become the highest ranking public official in the country to deal exclusively with animal welfare issues. And I think that is incredibly important, both on a symbolic and a real level. We're talking about someone whose sole task, Camille, is dealing with animal welfare issues. And I think it's one thing, obviously, obviously this person has to deal with um, um, animal welfare complaints about inspectors and things like that. But essentially, this person is, is, is ultimately responsible for all the care of all animals that are in the, uh, the public's uh, domain when they've been seized. But also, I think this person will have a unique opportunity to provide commentary and to provide analysis. And if you look very carefully at section two of the bill, for those of you following along, and of course, we'll link to the bill, they get to arrange, this is the amazing part, Camille, for analyses about the management and allocation of resources, the delivery of program and services, and the evaluation of program and services. Like it seems to me, Camille, we're going to have for the first time someone who's directly responsible for evaluating the way in which animal welfare investigations are undertaken in Ontario. Yeah, that's that's pretty groundbreaking. To to date, the most that we've ever seen in that in that direction is that there would be a you know a, a chief of whatever within an OSBCA or a humane society or a private organization, and although that person may sort of perform similar functions, there was no ability for the public to oversee that person or to access information about what they're doing and what they think. But I think your point is well made that having somebody directly accountable to politicians and to the public is a huge step. So if this bill passes, Camille, and this animal welfare inspector is appointed, um, we're about a year away from our next conference, but I can already think of a keynote speaker we might want to invite, Camille. Mm-hmm. I like that idea. Um, me too. So then we move on to the appointment of animal welfare inspectors. And who are they? Well, gone, of course, are the uh, OSPCA in- inspectors working for private bodies because it seems to me, Camille, that private uh, individuals or bodies are no longer able to form the bulk of the inspectorate in Ontario if this bill passes. That's right. So under Section 5, the Chief Animal Welfare Inspector may appoint people employed by public sector bodies, which is defined as, uh, you know, essentially a public body. It could be somebody from a municipality, somebody from a a local board, a municipally controlled corporation, but uh, not from a private charity. 
No, and I think that's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. My guess is that in smaller, in bigger municipalities like the city of Toronto, my guess is they will have their own inspectorate. And I think in smaller, um, in smaller cities, I think it's very likely that they may have mergers with like animal control boards or whatever, because I think it's just unlikely that you're going to have uh, major inspectorates in every jurisdiction. But I think that what's good is there's a lot of flexibility there. Uh, you could uh, appoint an inspector from all sorts of places, um, including various ministries, uh, municipalities, and corporations that are controlled by public bodies. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely some positivity here. So happy about that. Great stuff, Camille. Well, that takes us into the heart of the bill. I'm going to skip over the lengthy discussion about complaints. It seems to me that the government <laughs> the government took to heart the possibility that has been raised by those who are subject to inspectors, that those inspectors occasionally um, overuse their powers. So there are lengthy, lengthy sections about complaints. Yeah, we're and, basically uh, going to skip know. over here section 7 until about, oh my god, section 12. Let's see, did we get to 13? To about 13. Yes, you know, so 13. we'll move on from yeah. section 7 to 12. We're just going to skip that part. I think that may have been sort of our fault that it's quite as robust as it is, because that was a point that we made in the court case. Uh, but that's fine. It's incredibly fine. detailed. Always yeah, better to have more oversight detailed. of police agencies than less. So, okay. There you go. There you go. Um, let's just say that the standard, the, the sections 13 and 14 really don't change much to my eye, Camille. They're the basic duties and prohibitions that existed previously in the OSPCA Act. Um, so they require people who have custody or ownership of animals to comply with standards of care and, uh, and, um, and, uh, Unfortunately, uh, they impose the same exemption that existed previously. I think that was going to be a hurdle that was simply too big to cross at this stage, which means that those prescribed standards of care do not apply in accordance uh, of an activity regarding agricultural animal care, management, or husbandry that is carried on in accordance with reasonable and generally accepted practices. And as far as I could tell, Camille, that is taken word from word from the previous act. Yeah, yeah, it, it seems really like it is. Uh, that's pretty standard in respect of Provincial Animal Welfare Acts. And I don't think anyone was expecting that that agriculture exemption would change. Uh, but one thing that is positive is that the way the act seems to be setting it up, and we can get into this now or we can get into this later, is uh, that there is an expectation perhaps or at least an ability that the government might regulate some industries and that could potentially include agriculture. So there may be some specific standards that are created by regulation, but that's something that remains to be seen. Yes, absolutely. So the stuff, then we get into the actual um, uh, basis of what the act prohibits, aside from the standards of care, which are, let me just say that the standards of care, um, there are no standards of care set out in the act. Those are all going to be set out in regulations. And Ontario already had quite a few of those that I'd imagine will just be transferred forward to the new act. Well, they're, they're saying that they're consulting on new regulations and that there will be something at some point. Uh, usually the way thing, these things work is that when new legislation is introduced, it doesn't come into force until the regulations have all been confirmed as well. So maybe we'll see that in this case. But uh, that's kind of one of the 
issues about this. You know, we said right at the top that it seems pretty good, like the structure is good, but the devil really will be in the details. There's a lot still here to flesh out by regulation. And so exactly how robust this is when it comes to the standards and the protections, so much of that is going to depend on what comes down to the regulations. Well, that is true. But a couple of things I do know that are uh, definitely stronger um, with respect to the law itself is sections 15 through 20 of the bill, Camille. This has a lot of new stuff. And these are sections dealing with a couple of things. One is the general distress section, Camille, that exists in every provincial uh, uh, piece of legislation. This is just essentially the provincial version of animal cruelty in the fact that it says that no person shall cause an animal to be in distress. Nothing changed there, except for the first time, Camille, there is a new offense, and that is section 15 sub 3. No person shall knowingly or recklessly cause an animal to be exposed to an undue risk of distress. That is new, Camille. Extremely interesting, Peter. We've talked about risk on this podcast before and how part of the problem with prosecuting certain things that are seen as standard practices that cause harm to animals in various industries, we've, I think we've spoken specifically about things like rodeos, is that uh, it, you can't say in all cases that there is going to be distress, but there's definitely a risk of distress created when you force animals to perform, for instance. So the inclusion of this is fascinating. Yeah, definitely a change. It's uh, essentially, it's got some uh, mental element wording. So that's deliberately like, it's not going to be easy to prove those types of things, because you're going to have to prove that the person, you know, was aware of the possibility of this happening. But I do think it's it's really interesting. I think it's uh, an attempt to get into some new areas and make it clear that, you know, animals cannot be exposed to too many risks. I'm definitely um, excited about that. Yeah, there are also a new There are a new series of sections, Camille, that are kind of interesting in their own right, though they seem to, um, to me, overlap quite closely with what's been put into the criminal code. And those are a bunch of prohibitions on animal fighting. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So this year, earlier this year, the criminal code was amended to make sure that uh, various loopholes about animal fighting were closed. And it seems to me, I agree, that... uh, this legislation is doing exactly the same thing. So that's making sure that you can prosecute, if you're an inspector or a, or a crown attorney, that you can prosecute training of animals to fight, um, being at animal fighting events. Because, you know, if you are if you bust a ring, a cockfighting ring or a dogfighting ring, and all these people are like, oh, I'm just here, I'm just watching, but there's no specific um, offense of making animals fight committed, that can be difficult to prosecute. So they've got provisions there making that that found in people essentially can be prosecuted, uh, possessing equipment or fighting structures. So, so those are all positive. Absolutely. Now, Camille, if you really want to get me excited and you want to get both of us excited. I know when we see paragraphs uh, 18 and 20 of the bill, we start to get really excited because we've talked about this on this show. Oh boy. And let me stress, let me stress that the devil is definitely going to be in the details. But Camille, if you, you and I have bitched and moaned about something in this that doesn't involve contacting your minister, haha, uh, that, is, <laughs> that is, we have complained about the provincial failure to regulate 
the possession or breeding of certain animals. And lo and behold, Section 18, bless my heart, says no person shall possess or breed a prohibited animal in Ontario. And Camille, it gets even better because those are prohibited animals. And my guess is the list of prohibited animals will be fairly small. But it goes on to say no person shall possess or breed a restricted animal in Ontario. And wait a minute, Camille, God bless my heart, in Section 20 sub 2, the regulations about which types of animals should be prescribed as restricted, are you ready, Camille, is determined that the regulations are advisable to avoid A, undue risk to human safety, or B, ensure that an animal is humanely kept in captivity. Holy crap, Camille, we may start getting rid of some exotic animals. The IKEA monkey lady may have to move to Manitoba. This is incredible. This is incredible. I mean, it does seem like there'll be an exemption for any animals possessed in the province before the regs came into force. But hey, if we're shutting off new IKEA monkey ladies, that's that's really still impressive. We're talking about the largest province in the country and the only province that doesn't really have any exotic animal laws whatsoever. The only animals you can't have right now are an orca and a pit bull. So taking this step is something people have been pushing for for literal decades. <sighs> And the pit bull may change, Camille, but we'll come back to that in a future episode. Um, yeah, it's it's just unbelievable. And I agree with you. I mean, grandfather, um, for those of you who are not lawyers, grandfathering is very common in these sorts of situations. And, and, and I'm even, you know, mildly, and let me stress, Camille, mildly sympathetic to the grandfathering argument. I think it is, it is, it is to an extent, if the province allows a particular thing to take place and the province continues to allow it and continues to allow it and, and they involve living beings that you've invested time, resources and money in, it's it's unfair to a certain extent for the government to come along and say, on this day forward, that is banned. You must get rid of your animal. I mean, I'm not I, I just don't think that's that's really fair to any person. And I think for that reason, grandfathering to a certain extent makes sense. You can actually make some reasons. You can advance some arguments as to why grandfathering should not be permitted here. But at the very least, whether we grandfather or not, to me, is sort of not the concern. The fact is, you know, the IKEA monkey lady won't be able to get any more monkeys and she seems content on getting millions, assuming, of course, that her, the types of primates she's got are going to be prohibited or restricted. Yeah, yeah, which hopefully there are. They, they will be. So, you know, that's going to be the other thing is pushing via regulation for a restrictive list. But, you know, good to see that there's an ability probably to petition the lieutenant governor and council, that's cabinet, to add animals to that list. And uh, yeah, we are we are in good shape on this one, potentially. Good structure. We are, we are pretty... Pretty excited. I mean, that has a lot of potential, Camille. All right, we should move on because there's a lot more to do. I suggest, Camille, we skip over the inspection powers. I think the inspection powers look to me to be a little bit more robust in terms of inspecting violations. Does that sound fair to say? I, I think that's right. I think that's right. Nothing there strikes me as concerning. It seems like inspectors are going to have, you know, pretty standard abilities to investigate and inspect things. I will note that one thing that's not apparent from the legislation, this is more of a policy announcement that the government made when it released the legislation, is that it's promising that there will be proactive inspections of some industries. Wow. So remains to be seen wow. what those are. It, that assumes that they're going to regulate some industries, which I do hope happens. But that's also really positive. Well, I agree, Camille, but I want to I want to jump forward to uh, what is definitely new in this legislation. And quite frankly, as far as I'm concerned, again, I can't say I've looked at every law in the country, but it seems to me to be groundbreaking, Camille, is Section 28 of the proposed bill. Essentially, let me put it to you this way, people. Um, 
You can investigate, an animal welfare inspector can investigate any place where they believe an animal is in distress without a warrant, except for a dwelling house. That is true in the new bill, and it's also true in the old bill. And the reason for that is because dwelling houses have the highest level of privacy. They are where we live. If you're going to go into a dwelling house, you generally need a warrant. And that, I believe, is pretty standard across the country. But I will say this, Camille, you and I both know that that warrant requirement applies for human beings too. The police can't come to your house and burst in without a warrant um, with, in any situation except one, Camille where they have reasonable grounds to believe that there is a person who is suffering in your house. So if the police get a 911 call, they have long had the power to come to a house and, and force open the door because they believe someone is at risk. They have never had that power with animals, Camille, until, from what I can see, the amazing Section 28 of this proposed bill. Section 28 sub 2 says an inspector may enter a place, including a place being used as a dwelling, if the animal is in critical distress and the time required to obtain a warrant under Section 27 may result in serious injury or death to the animal. That's amazing. Uh Absolutely. And that is that is uh, really, really exciting news. I mean, I've just never seen that before. And that's that's really exciting that they have the ability, you know, where we're seeing that there is an animals. I mean, it's really about as close as you can come, Camille, to suggesting that animal lives matter. You know, that as crazy as crazy as it is to even say that, that we have to say that that that's really a concrete example of recognition that animal lives matter. And that's very exciting. It's responsive to the court decision, too, in Bogarts, where there was extensive discussion, primarily based on our submissions, about why it's very important to have broad search and inspection powers in the case of animals. It's because they're victims who can't report abuse themselves and especially vulnerable. So moving along, Camille, section, wow, we have some 33. provisions, we have some provisions, another hobby horse of ours, Camille, has been motor vehicles and the law makes some provision for that as well. <clears throat> yes, that's right. So the, the law, section 33 talks about an animal in critical distress inside a motor vehicle. So obviously we hear about hot dogs all summer long. Uh, we hear about pigs and transport trucks too, but uh, what this section is doing is giving the government the, the power to say that certain classes of people can enter a motor vehicle, including damaging the motor vehicle for the purpose of relieving that animal from distress. Now, they don't say yet who those people are going to be. Um, <laughs> probably would be surprising to me if they said any member of the public could break a car window to I, get a dog I out. I, I doubt it, Camille, because if they intended to do that, you didn't need the word prescribed. That's right. Right. It would just be it would just be a person. But it would not surprise me if they extend that to a wide range of municipal and um, um, other officials like paramedics, for example. I think it I wouldn't surprise me if they ex exactly firefighters, paramedics, maybe SPCA. I doubt it. Maybe but it's possible. Law like, enforcement agents. Yeah, he, I think it'll extend to a much wider range than just animal welfare inspectors and police. Like, I think it's going to go large. Yeah, maybe veterinarians. Who knows? It, it could be quite positive. Love it. Love it, Camille. Um, you know, we've been on this a while. Let's get to some highlights, Camille, because there's, uh, again, th then it gets into a lot of sections about enforcement and proceedings. And I don't want to spend a lot of time on that because I'm not convinced it's it's really a marked difference from what we have now. But boy, there's some big penalties coming for this sort of action as well. Boy, are there ever. So, uh the government said in its news release when it put this legislation 
forward, that it was uh, introducing some of the toughest penalties in the country. And uh, they're right about that. Wow. Yeah, essentially, they've divided the the two types of things that go on in this act into major and minor offenses, which I actually think is quite sensible from a prosecution perspective. They talk about failing to comply with certain regulations and failing to do certain things you're supposed to do or comply with orders that are given to you. Those are generally regarded as minor offenses, and the major offenses involve causing distress or actually causing harm to animals. And, of course, our old friend prohibited animal possession or breeding. And for the major offenses, they're talking some pretty whopping penalties. Again, um, up to, for original offenses, $130,000 fines and imprisonment for terms of not more than two years. What's uh, amazing, Camille, is that, A, they're going after corporations as well with even bigger fines, um, up to $500,000 for convictions for major offenses. And they've got minimum penalties, Camille, amazingly, for uh, more some of the more serious crimes. Which is surprising because I don't believe, Peter, and I could be wrong because I haven't looked at them all lately, but I don't believe there are mandatory minimums in other animal welfare uh, legislation in different provinces. But they say that several offenses have a minimum penalty of $25,000. So if an animal is caused to be in distress and the conduct that causes that distress results in either the death of the animal or a veterinarian needing to euthanize that animal to follow the most humane course of action, um, that is a mandatory fine of $25,000. That includes as well uh, contravening sections related to animal fighting and harming law enforcement or service animals. Yeah, let me just say, I mean, there's pluses and minuses to this law. This is in section 48 sub 7 for those of you following along. This again, Camille, it's amazing how many of the things we've talked about on our show before are actually in this new law because I'm a huge fan of graduated offenses. I think that's a good idea. I think it makes sense rather than just throw everything into the same basket and let the judge sort it out on sentence, recognize that certain types of causing distress are worse than others and where the distress results in the death or you know euthanization of the animal, that is an aggravated feature to the offense and it, to me it makes sense to punish those people more harshly. I probably would have done it with higher maximums rather than putting in minimums because I just don't see how, you know, given the types of offenders that we've seen come before the courts in these cases who are usually impecunious offenders, which means they don't have any money, um, I struggle to see how $25,000 maximums will even hold up constitutionally, but they might, but I mean, always tricky. Yeah, and it's a bit of a problem for me too. I can appreciate the sentiment and the, the desire to, you know, use punishment as a way to deter cruelty, but I think in the reality, in reality, for for most offenders, especially individual people, that's um, not going to be a huge deterrence, but it will be a bit of an undue punishment. I, I I think Peter, you and I are kind of on the same page, coming from a criminal law background, that harsh penalties don't really accomplish much for animals, but. There we go. That's. Though I'd uh, love to see those. I'd love to see those minimum fines applied to uh, corporations. Well, that that'd be, be more exciting. And, certainly handle. Yeah, 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 and 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 there's um, interesting provisions in uh, the subsection eight in that same section uh, about the liability of directors and officers of corporations, mm. and uh, the subsection mm. nine about how. Uh, prohibition orders can apply to corporations as well. So a corporation could be banned from owning or having care or possession or living with animals uh, for a period of time specified in an order, including very, up to forever exciting. in the case of a corporation. It is 
It is very exciting stuff, Camille. I, 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 I think we could go on at length, but I, I think we've hit... It. Was there any other sections you really wanted to hit on, Camille? I got all the ones that I really wanted. Uh, yeah, the only other thing is that they're introducing the ability to impose administrative monetary penalties for some offenses. And this is something that's often used as a regulatory tool. It's more of a traffic ticket. It's like a fine set out on the spot via ticket rather than something that goes to court and is prosecuted. And there's an ability to contest an AMP, administrative monetary penalty, but it's a sort of a procedurally faster way to do it. And I think there's mixed evidence about how effective these are for animals. I think if the fine is high enough, they can be a good tool, but oftentimes they're treated as just the cost of doing business. So I'm going to be watching to see what they include in the regulations about the AMPs as well. Absolutely uh, exciting stuff, Camille. I'm glad we got a chance to talk about it. We'd be interested to hear your thoughts. If you have any, please send them to us. Uh, we'd like to hear you know, what people think. Are you excited about this bill? Is it just more of the same old, same old? We certainly don't think it is. But uh, we look forward to seeing uh, how much of this passes the legislature. Heroes and Zeros. All right, now it's time for everybody's favorite part of the show, Heroes and Zeros. Heroes and Zeros. All right, well. You got it, Camille. In keeping with our theme about animal welfare legislation and enforcement, we decided that we would recognize the Ontario SPCA as the hero. Uh, They made the difficult and complex decision to withdraw from doing animal law enforcement, which is a function that they fulfilled in Ontario for 100 years. And I know that wasn't an easy choice for them. They had to weigh a lot of options, but I think they made the right one. And I think that it's, you know, in in a great part due to their efforts that we're seeing this positive new enforcement regime being put forward by the government. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. As I said, I, I think... I think the decision was courageous, and I say that because I I have heard um, from many other people who work in this area um, of the difficulties they have in making this decision, and they really agonize over it, Camille. They're not sure what the future holds. It's impossible to guarantee that things in the future will be better, and they feel on a certain level, I'm sure many people at the OSPCA felt like they were giving up. I wasn't privy to those internal discussions, but I can't imagine that they were easy to have. And I think that it is courageous to do something like this, however it's going to work out, and I believe that when you're doing something something that I think ultimately they felt would be beneficial for animals in the long run. I think that's the only reason they could have done it. I, I don't think that was an easy decision, and I think they are very deserving of, uh, of a hero award for that very reason. Yeah, no, they really are. They're, they're staffed by tremendous people who care deeply about animals, and I can only imagine that they, they worried extensively about the impact this might have and what kind of gaps there would be in enforcement. Well, the government figured out something new, but I think that sometimes the only way to move forward is not just to tinker with the system as it is and make some small changes to the status quo, but to uh, really switch things up entirely, and I don't think that without their decision we'd necessarily be in the same place, so... Way to go, OSPCA. Absolutely. Now our zero, Camille, um, I want to say our zero could have, we could have gone hero and zero for this uh, particular um, um, story. We wanted to highlight um, what some of you may not even be following, an incredible story that's going on in Australia that surrounds the Melbourne Cup. It is very difficult if you're not from that part of the world, and I spent a lot of time in that part of the world, to understand the cultural significance of the Melbourne Cup. Um, You have to really, it's honestly a bit 
bit like the Super Bowl um, in the sense that it has incredible cultural relevance in both Australia and New Zealand. The Melbourne Cup is a horse racing event that is the premier horse racing event um, in Australia, and they are getting our zero because of an incredible undercover expose that was undertaken by the ABC um, um, news program 730 um, in Australia. And that's why I said it's a hero and zero, Camille, because we could easily have given our hero award for this incredible expose that really tracks the dark side of horse racing. They literally um, went through every aspect of the Melbourne Cup's problematic behavior. In In particular, the what so-called Camille wastage of horses that are killed after their racing utility has ended. It was an incredible scandal in Australia. The news is still breaking. The Melbourne Cup was run yesterday, and I can tell you that there, this has really shaken the industry to its core because of this incredible undercover investigation. Well, I sure hope so. I think that we're making huge gains in this area of animals being used for entertainment. And if we've got any hope of shutting it down, we need mainstream media organizations and not just the animal rights activists exposing this cruelty. Yeah, and this undercover expose, which I highly recommend, let me just say, it's like 45 minutes long, and some of the footage is incredibly tough to watch. It's literally gruesome. They literally show every aspect of what's going on. And as always, Camille, it follows a particular themes, right? You can see all the themes. One is lies by the industry. The industry suggests that only 0.3% of the horses used in the racing industry in Melbourne are not are, are killed. 0.3%, which is impossible when you understand that the problem with horse racing is, is as always, multifaceted. There is the injuries and deaths that are caused during the race itself. But there is also the idea of continually breeding more horses for the sole purpose of getting a winner. And to do that, you've got to have hundreds of horses pushed forward so that you can get the one top horse. And what this undercover investigation showed is that these industry claims of little horses or very few horses being killed is absolute garbage. What they saw was there was this undercover cover, uh, sorry, this underground way of shipping horses off to abattoirs in other parts of the country. And they were able, through this detailed investigation, to track how many hundreds of horses were being killed on a monthly basis, Camille. It was absolutely brutal and uh, absolutely a a devastating blow, I think, to the horse racing industry in Australia. Well, I sure hope so. And I I hope anyone listening appreciates, and you probably do if you're tuning into this podcast, but it's no different anywhere else. It's no different in Canada. It's no different in the States where the Santa Anita horse track has been under fire recently for just tons and tons of horses dying this year. It's a standard in this industry and it's rotten to the core. Absolutely. And I just, I cannot commend enough to go take a watch uh, on this. I'm hoping that this expose will really cause people to reflect upon the cultural significance. I mean, you know, we've had these same discussions, Camille, in regard to the Calgary Stampede, the cultural significance of this event and what it really means. I mean, the blood, the literal blood on the ground from all these horses that are there for people's entertainment is is really, really deeply disturbing. So I would say this is about as well earned to zero as anyone can get the Melbourne Cup you are getting the zero of the podcast well we'll link to it in our show notes so check it out if you're so inclined and I guess that's our, our episode for this week Peter 
that brings us to the end of our show, Camille. I, I, I am always sad at the end of our show, but I look forward to seeing your smiling face next week, Camille, and we can talk about Paw and Order and who knows, maybe record something. Until then. Until then. We'd like to thank our listeners for tuning in today. We'd love to ask you to subscribe to the Paw and Order podcast using Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or your other favorite podcatcher. Also, please leave a rating because it helps more people find the show. And if you can, please tell other listeners to share the podcast so more people can hear us. You can also consider supporting us on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash order if you like what you hear. You can find me on Twitter at, at Peter Sankoff or at my website, petersankoff.com. And you can find me on Twitter at, at Camille Labchuk, that's L-A-B-C-H-U-K. And we always enjoy Twitter conversations about the show or any other animal law or political topics. And finally, we'd like to thank our producer, Shannon Milling. See you next time on Paw and Order. For more great iRaw podcasts, visit iRawPod.com. That's I-R-O-A-R-P-O-D.com. Ah!